Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 109 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Rodney Skeet Curtis. I play bass. I've done a lot of recording, but I basically played for two acts in my whole career. That's George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, and Maceo Parker. 20 pretty years. resume. Yeah, yeah 20 resume. years each. 20 years each. But I'm kind of back with P-Funk now in a, some kind of small way. It's an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. The Same sounds here. that you have created since the late 70s have <laughs> definitely, I, it's funny, I was thinking before getting on this that I had at some point, back when I was really in the music industry as a journalist, I was given a CD collection of Funkadelic or Parliament, probably. Right, right. And I could even see the spine of it. It was just such a great set. <laughs> and being a rock guy primarily, it really was one of the gateways for me to start expanding my tastes in music, especially as I got older. So that's you. That's your problem. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about when you first started playing the bass. I love to start with origin stories. When did you first hear the instrument, see the instrument, pick it up? Well, it's actually kind of weird. I went to the movies with family, friends in the neighborhood. I had to be 12, right around in there. And we saw the movie, Your Cheating Heart which is the story of Hank Williams Sr. And I was just moved by that movie, and it made me want to play guitar. But I had really big hands as a kid. they probably the same size then as they are now. So I couldn't really work my way around a guitar. So I kind of played bass on guitar. My babysitter's boyfriend, now husband, was a bass player and a very popular group around town. And I always looked at him, at, you know, he's really nice to me. And I kind of looked at him as a, as a mentor more or less. And was and, he playing a stand-up or electric? No, he's playing electric. It was a group called Frankie and the Spinners, which became Frankie and the Spindles because there was already a Spinners. He had a Telecaster bass. Ampeg, SVT, double bottom. He had the classic bass rig of the time. And I saw him play and I was like, this is amazing. When I was a little kid, I think they played like some outdoor thing at when we lived in the project. It's kind of a community thing. And I was oh, that's beautiful. And that inspired me to play bass as a proper instrument. What were your oh. parents thinking at the time? Were they panicked that, oh, dear Lord, he's following the, the sister's boyfriend? <laughs> no, no, they were, yeah, you know, my, my mother has always been, you know, rest in peace. She's always been like super supportive of anything I've ever done, actually. She scrounged up or they, her and her husband, which was my stepfather, they scrounged the money together, to get me a guitar. And, and that's when I figured out that my fingers were too big. So I played bass on it. And eventually, you know, I got a bass and the rest is history, as they say. I played in a local band, singers, band and singers, which is how it was back then. 
and they had a Fender Mustang, which is the first real bass that I played. And I bought myself a Fender Precision like a couple of years after that, which I wish I still had. You're worth a little money now. I think a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So what year was this? That was, I was 13. So that had to be 69. Wow. I mean, the instrument's still fairly newish, this idea, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It hadn't, what had it been, what had bass been, electric bass been, since what, the 50s? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm playing it in the 60s. Back then, bass was like, I was, may as well have been under the four floorboards, you know, a bass right. player. So, but I was fascinated by an instrument for some reason. Talk to me about the music you were listening to and appreciating at the time. And can you make a connection between seeing this instrument, being attracted to it, and what you were actually listening to? Who was influencing you at the time? Was it friends? Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. My mother and Motown. Oh, my goodness. So it was Jameson. All Jameson. And, and I never, I didn't know who he was or anything like that. But as time progressed, and I listened to recordings of myself. I said, hey, there's some, you know, there's some Jameson in there. And that's my main influence over time. But of course, there's the, you know, the list, Jocko, Larry Graham, Stanley Clark, there's the list. And of course, I've been influenced by them, as well as people I've met along the way. Yeah, it's amazing to think that when I speak to younger players, obviously, they're influenced by those same people. But they only come to that music in the 80s or the right, 90s. They're right. not there when it's they're right. not even there before. Forget as right. it is happening. Right, right. What I'm so fascinated with, if I think about you starting in the late 60s, this is also a really telling time of music. We're coming out of the 60s and the hippie movement. We're moving into what is the beginning of hip-hop, urban, funk yeah. being popularized. Yeah, You're there in it. What Flying the Family Stone. Flying the Family yeah. Stone. That's it. Dennis Chambers, who I'm sure you know, we grew up together and we used to watch Flying the Family Stone, Power of Power, Mar Vishnu Orchestra, A Little Feet, Electric Light Orchestra, all these different types of bands, Gentle Giant, Fog Hat, you name them. We watched them on television. Don Kirshner and all those shows like that. And what about live shows? When do you start going to live shows? Who are you going to check out? Believe it or not, my most favorite live show I ever saw was Humble Pie, Gentle Giant, and I believe it was Edgar Winter. And, I, and it was like $5. And then shortly after that, it was Mike and Tina Turner, Chicago. Shortly after that, it was Parliament Funkadelic and uh, Ohio Players and Cooling Again. I used to go see live music all the time. But this is in Baltimore, right? Yeah. The yeah, area. Yeah. So you basically born, raised, and stayed within that vicinity your whole life. Yeah. I can get anywhere I need to go from here. That's, <laughs> that's kind of my philosophy. I can get there. What was the music scene like, though? Friends. What were your friends? Were, was everybody into the same thing? Did Pretty you find much. yourself experimenting with music that friends weren't listening to? Yeah. And in fact, I was in a group a band called Hot Ice. Great name. Yeah. And we were a six-piece band. We had a four-piece rhythm section, a singer, and a guy that 
he was also a singer, but he banged on stuff as well. And we played UK. We played Yes. We played all kinds, along with like R&B, what, what, what do they call it back then? Soul. Along with that stuff, we played the, the kind of outside stuff. But we kind of melded it together so it was danceable, if you can believe that. If you can believe a Yes song can be danceable. We found a way to twist it to make it danceable. And that's probably when I was MD for P-Funk, that's how that whole thing came to be. Because we would twist other stuff into the P-Funk songs and the Georgia and the singers would be singing whatever they're singing. We're playing something entirely different with only close of the songs that he's singing. So it really got to be twisty, turny, kind of inside out, man. That's how all of that came to be from the stuff that I listened to when I was young. It's such a strange thing for me to think about because you're right, obviously. Chronologically, you're talking about a time when yes and progressive music was emerging. On the mm -hmm. other side, I'm going to assume that a lot of the dominance in the mainstream media was disco. But well, there was before, it was before disco. Right before right. Yeah. So what was dominant was what they call now classic rock. Well, and that's, the, that's like the sixties into the seventies. Yeah, yeah, right, sure. right. And soul music, temptation, four tops, that's the shy lights. In our community it was that. But I was fortunate enough to get out of my community into other communities through music and hear other stuff. And man, I like those guys can play too. You know, I used to sit, this is years later, but I would sit my daughter down and, and play a video of, say, UK. And I said, those guys are playing that stuff that you hear right there. There's no tapes, no dats. Not, they are actually playing those notes like that right there. And it, it's fascinating. And she has a great appreciation of music through that. Talk about when you had made the decision to become, I'll use air quotes, a professional. That this is going to be life. This is going to be work. It's one thing to be playing in bands and having fun and meeting people and going to bars. It's another when you're in it. Do you remember well, when exactly that was? Yeah, I remember. I was, I guess I was 19. We'd been playing bars and what have you. Made decent money for that. And I made a couple, three, four hundred some weekends. But I said to myself, ah, I, I really should find a real job. And that ended up, you know, I, I saw a matchbook, earn a high paying career in drafting. I said, that sounds good. So I became a draftsman. But I was still playing on the weekends, but I was making more still on the weekends playing music than driving because, I, you know, I'm a trainee base. I rose up to prominence in the drafting field, but, I, you know, I wasn't making any real money. And through that process, I met a lot of people who went on to do greater things in music through playing in Baltimore, one of which was Gary Bone Cooper, who went to play with Bootsy. He was a good friend of mine. He lived around the corner from me. We went to the same high school. One thing led to another, and he introduced me to Gary Scheider. And I was playing originally, the original thing I was supposed to do, excuse me, Grady Thomas, 
one of the singers with Parliament was going to form his own band. And our band was going to be his band. But nobody wanted to make that big move. I'm like, hey, I'll do it. So I went to Atlanta. First time on a plane. I'm straight out of Baltimore. I get down there. I meet Gary Scheider. He lives in Atlanta at the time. Ray Davis lives in Atlanta at the time. I'm doing these recordings with Grady. Grady, me, Gary Scheider. Eventually, Dennis Chambers came down. And Greg Jackson, who I think plays with Zap now. He was a keyboard player. I was the bass player. Dennis was the drummer. So I went and did that. And I think... Well, I don't think it. I know it now because I asked Gary's wife because he would never cop to this. He probably, I say, he went back to George and said, hey, man, you might want to hear this bass player that Grady's got. So I'm home. You know, I had a blow up with Grady's management. So I, I stormed off and went home. I was very impulsive back in those days. So I'm, I'm back there. I'm home. I'm, I'm home stewing, right? The phone rings. It's Gary Cooper. He says, look, I don't know what's going on with you and Grady, but George wants you to come to Detroit and do these sessions, which was at the time was supposed to be the Brides of Funkenstein, who hadn't been formed yet, and Parlette, who hadn't been formed yet. So I go to do these sessions. First thing I did, because we used to do a P-Funk medley in the band I played at at home. First thing I did, I took my bass out and played this medley. But I played it like a classical guitarist. So I'm playing the bass and I'm playing the, the melody or whatever, the hook line, I'm doing all of this, right? And he, they're looking at me and he says, I want you to play, play in a group. Do what you have to do. He gave me a, a, a little pile of money. Go pay off whatever you need to pay off at home and come out on the road. And that, that's how I came to play with P-Funk. That's unbelievable. Yeah. It's a crazy story. Yeah, that's how it happened. It was like, wow. Talk a little bit about George. My perception of him, I don't think I've interviewed him over my years of doing this, is he is a persona. He is a character. There are moments yeah. where it feels like he's from a different planet. Maybe by design. Maybe it's yeah. just who he is. Well, What's he's it? got a he's got a whole head full of stuff that... He can remember who played on what session in the 50s. Wow. Okay, wow. I mean, he remembers everything. But, you know, he kind of, you know, people used to bring him cassettes all the time. You know, he goes into his oh, crazy George thing. So he doesn't have to deal with that. Then he'd like, listen to that tape. And, you know, give me the tape to listen to. But he, like, like you said, the persona of, what people expect him to be, that's who he was when they were around, but he wasn't like that around that, of course. It's really interesting to me, and I don't know if you can make the correlation, but when I think about his work, I often think about David Bowie, too. There's something really timely and interesting about how they're crossing around the same time, Bowie a mm -hmm. touch later, mm -hmm. and just really playing with these ideas of space and time and what music is and genre bending and nonstop and it's weird because they're very different, but they feel yeah, very yeah. similar to me. It's such an interesting thing to me. Well, George and Bootsy talk about an, a oh, yeah. close encounter that they had. Now, they both admit that they were high at the time, but they, they will swear to you that they had a close encounter. Right. And, and I'm sure that 
played into his theory about how things worked and the Afronauts and all that stuff that you can read on Parliament and Funkadelic albums back then. But, Do you yeah, like they, that stuff, Skeet? Do you like those science fiction-y, weird? Like, love it. Like, so tell me a bit about that. When did you start enjoying that? What exposed you to that? What do you like about it now? Well, now I mainly like the special effects involved in it. I, I could watch science fiction movies, you know, day in, day out. Me too. Back then, you know, the, the Star Trek thing was fascinating because they, they explored interhuman things. The cast was integrated. There were relationships, multicultural relations. Yeah, it was the first biracial kiss, I think, is yeah. Star Trek. So yeah. it's, it's crazy. And that's and the stories were good. Plus, I was into sci-fi. I'm super into computers and stuff via that. And I'm fascinated by it to this day. To me, like I'm, I'm watching Found, well, it finished this season, but Foundation. Oh, it's great. great. Great show. Great. That was great. Great show. I even really liked the newer Star Trek series, uh, Strange New Worlds. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't yeah. know if you watched that. Like the way yeah, that they played like. on. Yeah, but they, I love the way it was. Each episode was that. It felt like that first series where you're getting. Yeah. It's not like you got to spend 18 hours and pack a lunch. You get something in every show. and Yeah, yeah it's uh, more of an anthology than a serial. Yeah. I mean, there are serial aspects to it. But there's a story that wraps up in every episode, yeah, which is uncommon these days. So good, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I love that genre. I could spend yeah, two, uh, yeah, me too. We should do a science fiction podcast after this one. Yeah, there you Great. go. <laughs> so you walk in, Clinton basically puts the sword on both of your shoulders and says, "You're going to come along. You're the guy." Yep. You're the guy. And you're basically connected in a part of that since then. That's what, what 1977-ish, right? Yeah, 77, exactly. Yeah. I mean, here we are. It's it's 2023, maybe 2024 when this gets published, because it's the end of the year we're recording this. How right. do you think about that journey? I mean, that's just, there's so much richness in music, songs that were recorded, tours, components, different times, that music living through generations from Vietnam and beyond, yeah. it, it's its wild to me. What's that like for you when you think about just the legacy of that much time spent with this band? I'm blessed. That's how I think. It's, it's as simple as that. As simple and as complex as that. If you think I'm 20 years old, so I'm in the studio, there's Bernie Worrell over there. There's Gary Schiotter over there. There's George Clinton over there. And walks Glenn going. You know, it's crazy. And then, we had a a mutiny in the band, and the horn section left. Macy on them, this is not them. So George calls, and, and Maceo could, I can't remember, maybe it was Rick, I can't remember, but they came to temporarily bridge the gap between the old horn section and then the section that became the P-Funk horns, Greg, Greg, and Benny. And I'm standing there playing, playing, and I'm looking, I'm like, Man, that is Maceo Parker. I can't believe this. Now I'm 21 at this point, but I'm, man, that is Maceo Parker. I'm sitting, I'm laying back in the cut, playing my little skeet thing, and that's Maceo Parker. Life doesn't get any better than that. And if you push it forward and think about it now, mm -hmm. 
it's not that you're 21 years old playing with these people, but they're peers, friends, family, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. I talk to them on the phone about nothing. <laughs> that's the, you know, that's the, is that not the sign of the perfect relationship? You yeah. Speak on the phone to somebody about nothing. That's perfect. Yeah. Maceo will call me. He calls every few weeks and he'll call me up and I see, I have caller ID. I see it's him. I'll say something like Mr. Parker. And he'll just laugh for 10 minutes. Then we'll laugh for 10 minutes, you know, tell a few stories. Oh, I just called to see what you were doing. Da, 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 da. What you doing? Watching TV. What are you doing? Watching TV. And we'll crack up about that. But in George, of course, well, now I see him all the time. But it's crazy. You know, like you said, I go from, man, that's Maceo Parker, to laughing about nothing on the phone with Maceo Parker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So. How is the music now? What is the thing that happens when the band goes out and plays now? What is the audience like? How has it changed? Because that music set the tone for generations. And I don't just mean in the music. It set the mm -hmm. tone in terms of the feeling in the world, the culture. Yeah. Well, now it's a different time. Yeah. Well, back then, it was 99% black. Probably now it's 99% white. All oh, ages. Oh, really? Okay. All ages. All ages. Well, it depends on what cities you play. You know, you go to Detroit, it's still, I'll say, 80% black, but it's all ages. You know, it's the people that had us back in the 70s with their kids and grandkids now. You know, in fact, George has kids and grandkids in the band now. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, true. So... And they do their sections. It, it's more geared toward them now. We do a few of the hits. But, you know, in fact, I play three, four songs max. Oh, really? Yeah. Lodge Curry is the bass player. I don't view myself as the bass player. You know, I'm the guy that George called, hey, what you doing? And nothing. Why don't you come out and play a few songs? No problem. And that, that's how that happened. What's it like for you playing now versus playing then? How has your playing changed? How do you think about the instrument now? I play, I don't want to say less because that's not really accurate. I play smarter now than I did. Like when I first joined P-Funk, I wanted to play every note in existence really fast. That was me in the beginning. Because I came from a prog slash jazz background. So I'm, that's me. You know, I want to play like, I, I want to be Jocko. That's me. So I learned over time to slow it down and play less, not as many notes, I like to say. And now I basically play the song. I play as written now, which, you know, I have a, my style dictates that I play as written, but a certain way. And it's still that way, but I'm pretty straight down the line now. Which, unless I get a solo, then it's anything goes. How would you define that? You said my style. What is your style, Steve? How would you explain it? My style is soul that became prog, that became fusion, that became funk. It's all of that in one thing. So I can probably go in any direction at any time. But basically, I'm a funk player with the kind of essence of the other things out there. There's a bit of a paradox in that, in that if you think about the progressive players and what you're saying about Jacko and Chris Squire, yes, beyond, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That instrument started shifting to follow the guitar and vocal, right? Versus where we traditionally knew the bass from in that time frame of sitting between the drums and the rest of the band, right? So when you talked about your style as this fusion, there's also the whole slap in there that we got to talk yeah. about, but right. How are you thinking about it and how is it being felt? Meaning is Clinton thinking you're taking up too much space following lines versus holding it down the fort? Are you trying to figure out the balance? Like what is the balance? How are you thinking about the styles? Oddly enough, he pretty much gave me free reign from day one. Luckily for me, I was smart enough to know that free reign doesn't mean go crazy. So I played the songs you know, within the context of what I I was doing, but I went out on the edges a little bit, but it was just a little bit. I didn't stay out there. I'd go out real quick, come back. In fact, he told a drummer, don't follow Skeet. I know he'll be back. I don't know if you'll be back. He knows his way around out there. I just knew how to go out and come back and go out and not stay too long. I want to talk about jazz. And then I want to go a, a little bit somewhere else, but tell me a bit about the jazz influence, what you mean by that. Is it the type of music? Is it the way the instrument walks and plays with the lines? What was it about jazz and what do you love about it? And who were the players at the time that were pushing your thinking? Well, jazz, not fusion, but jazz to me is very, is very saxophone heavy. And that's when I think of jazz, that's what I think of sax line, you know, sax player, play a solo. Maybe I'll hear what he's playing, catch a little bit of it, get back in, you know, go out with him a little bit, get back in. But I think of jazz as saxophone territory, not just saxophone, but a, a lot more sax laden, sax leads. As opposed to, well, of course you have your Pat Metheny, your guitar leads, and you got your bass leads. But primarily, I look at at a jazz as a saxophone-heavy genre. And who were the players that were inspiring you from there? Bass player-wise or sax-wise? Yeah. Bass player-wise, of course, it's it, it would be Stanley, mainly on upright in the you know in Early the years. jazz area. Yeah. Now, Fusiony, of course, is Electric Stanley. You got him. You got John Patitucci. Yeah, you added the Fusion. I, I want to get the Fusion because Fusion is an interesting <laughs> time. Again, it's intro, It's one thing to say I'm into Jasmine to Fusion. It's another thing when you're living through watching these genres be created. So that's why I'm trying right. to start with jazz. And I'm wondering about people like Carter mm-hmm. and those types of players. Are you following those players or is that not as interesting to you? No, it is. It was. In fact, I did a festival that he was on, Carter, Ron Carter. And I, we were talking. He said something about me playing bass. I said, no, no, no. You play bass. I play this thing. <laughs> you know? So, no, 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 don't. You're, you're the guy. You know? I'm just a guy. You're the guy. You know, those guys, you know, the, you know, the Patitucci's, the Stanley's, John Carter, John Carter. Ron, Ron Carter. Carter yeah. <laughs> See, Ron Patitucci, Ron Carter. You were there. You were there. No, no, John Carter, sci-fi. Oh, right, right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm still yeah. making bass. So we're back into our podcast for science yeah. fiction. Okay, I didn't know. Thanks. Yeah, that's how I look, view jazz. And those guys, 
while they did take the lead at some, you know, at points, various points, they basically played behind sax players, if you think yeah. about it. So that's how I view jazz. So talk a bit about, I mean, I don't know if I've ever had the opportunity to speak to someone who's living it. What's happening when fusion comes in? Where are you? Who are you hearing? Is it very clear in that moment that this is not jazz? This isn't the evolution of something? It's not like we have rock and roll and then we had rock and roll get heavier. This is right. really different. Jazz right. got heavier and we called it fusion. Right. Jazz rock fusion. Yeah. That's how I looked at it. Whereas Prague progressive rock was basically classical music and rock fusion. Yeah. Whereas our fusion was jazz and rock to me. And probably the first really fusion group was returned to forever. Right. You know, Ma Vishnu, of course, but they were classically influenced to me as opposed to jazz influence. Return to forever was jazz, but with that fusiony edge to it. Goes more electric as opposed to acoustic. And then it's a lot of people playing a lot of notes together. Whereas if you think of jazz, it's not that. You got people soloing, but they're being comped during their solo. In fusion, they're basically soloing together. You got your comps, of course, but it's at least two people like soloing together with those lines. That's how I viewed it. Is it one of those things where you become fascinated with it and you want to change who you are or how you play? Or was it never like that? It was like that to some degree. I loved it. I was fascinated. I didn't want to be that. I wanted to incorporate that into what I did. That's why I said I went from the soul dude to the soul this and the plus that and the plus that. I wanted to incorporate that into what I did, but I, you know, I didn't want to, you know, be, I didn't want to be Jocko. I wanted to be able to play what Jocko played, but within what I was doing. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? No. See him live? Oh, I saw him live once. Okay. One time. But I never met him. I, I don't think, even though I was almost already Rodney Skeet Curtis, I didn't feel like, I guess I didn't feel worthy. You know, I hate to put it that way, but I think that's it. And you saw him live solo or you saw him weather report? How did... It had to be weather report. That's a good time to like, see him. I mean. Like early on in his weather report, like maybe a year or so after he was there. Forget the fact that you've had an incredible career. Ski. I can't imagine the shows and people you've seen. And I have friends that like a good friend of mine, Ron Tooley, trumpet player, he played with Jocko and the big band. And I, I tell everybody, Ron Tooley, great player. He played with Jocko, the end. That's it. Right. You know, that I, I don't know what to say beyond that. He played with Jocko. That's it. It's, it's funny. There's a similar story with Daryl Jones and the Rolling Stone gig. And ultimately... Mm -hmm. The story goes that he played with Miles Davis. That's it. And that, yeah, was lot enough, of, that was enough for these guys. They were like, we're good. I, that's enough for a lot of people. Yeah. He played with Miles. That's it. Yeah. In fact, Bernie Worrell and talking about Michael Henderson. He and Michael Henderson were really tight. And he said, hey, he played with Miles. And then he like threw his hands. <laughs> we're good. You're in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, he played with Miles. You got the gig. Talk a bit about 
the career shift when Maceo Parker starts coming into being more of a full-time gig? Are you doing both at the same time? Was it one or the other? I, I'm not sure I'm clear on that history of your life. Well, that's an interesting story, how that all came to be. Maceo Parker had his longtime bass player leave for whatever reason. So he called me up to basically, well, how do you put it? He wanted me to, he wanted me to do two and a half weeks. I need a sub for two and a half weeks. I said, but at the time I was recording with Dr. Dre and I was just starting. So I didn't want to mess that up. So I said, I, I can't do it, but you know, keep me in mind for the future. So a little while later, he called again. I need you for two and a half weeks. And as it turned out, we were off when he was going to start and we ended, well, he was going to end in San Francisco. And the day after that, the first P-Funk gig of the next tour was going to be in LA. So I said, oh, this is perfect. Kismet, right? So I went out and, you know, I do the first gig, first gig. Lake Tahoe with Maceo. And he comes backstage. Now, this is like mid-January of 99, I want to say. Mid-January. First gig. One gig. He comes backstage and says, so uh, you're going to finish out the year, right? <laughs> I said, Mace, you said two and a half weeks. It's January. So now you're talking 12 months? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll see what I can do. I'll, you know, talk to the office and try to rearrange the schedule or whatever. So I called the office. We had this blowout, many blowouts. So I'm, I'm done. So I said, Macy, I, I can do it. I'm done. I'm good. Next thing you know, 20 years passed. So I went straight from PFUN to Macy, but never at the same time. What happens after 20 years and what's that phone call like? When they what, want you back. Well, but George, what happened was originally they were in Europe and then a few people tested positive for COVID so they couldn't travel back and they had gigs coming up. Ah. So he called me up to see if I could do these gigs, but I couldn't because it was, it was my wife's birthday was coming up and we already had this big thing planned. So I couldn't bail on that. I couldn't do it. And then after that, maybe I want to say a month or so, maybe not quite, they were going to play at the Howard Theater, which is in D.C., not too far from us, in Baltimore. So he wanted Dennis and I to come down and play a couple of songs, which we did. So then after that, you know, I'm home. He calls me up. She come out, do a couple gigs, play a couple songs. Well, sure, I can do that. And that's how that happened. It's, it was COVID, which in essence ended Maceo, was the beginning of my second tour with PFO. I love how everything's a two-week thing and it winds up being 20 years. Like, what kind of life is this? You know? Yeah, 20 years. Most people, they think their job's going to last 20 years and it only lasts two weeks. You're the opposite. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you take from the different dynamics of being with Maceo and being with Clinton, how does that play for you? How do you think about music? Is it so different? Is it very similar? It's extremely similar. Because 
while a lot of what Maceo did sounded scripted, only parts of it were, and very few, everything else was amoebic in its tendency. It just kind of formed into the next thing. We had these hits we have to do, da, 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 you know, or whatever. You did the hits, but other than that, you were free to roam through the music. And P-Funk, well, the hits are the hits. You play Flashlight, what, what are you going to do with Flashlight? What, you going to make Flashlight take five? No. You know, Flashlight is Flashlight. So f- actually, now that I think about it, P-Funk was actually more scripted than Maceo was. Oh, that's interesting. Because the songs are the songs. What we did with Maceo was the songs are the songs, but there's a lot of groove in between what you would recognize as a song. You know, you got to make it funky. Okay, everybody knows what that is. So we play a little bit of that, and then we morph through some stuff to get to the end of that, which turns into another song. But P-Funk, it looked very chaotic when you're viewing it from the audience. It looks very chaotic. It's nowhere near as chaotic as it looked. Talk a bit about this idea of what essentially you're talking about is improv and the space that exists between playing a song, flashlight, mm-hmm. there's an expectation to improv. That space couldn't be further apart. There's a song, people know it, they have a thing. Even if you have a melody in your head, but you're improving, nobody knows where we're going. Right. How do you know, as the bass player in particular, how to help bring it together? Because there is a difference between making sure the song is delivered for the hit that it is versus Mm -hmm. we are going to go on a journey together. Band up here, me as an individual, and then the audience, and then whatever happens in between. Well, with Maceo, oddly enough, as the bass player, I would listen to the guitarist, Bruno Spate, for the rhythmic aspect of what we were doing. I would listen to Will Bulware, keyboard player, for the chords. So I would play rhythm against Bruno but I would play my notes based on what Will was playing. Got to be really paying attention. Bruno was really good rhythmically. You know, he had a good solo thing, but his rhythm was impeccable. So I know not to get off track from what he's doing rhythmically. And then Will, he's playing the big boy jazz chord. So I got to kind of, you know, he plays this. I can't more, I, I knew what not to play based on a given chord than what to play. You know, if you think about too much about what you're going to play, you'll just kind of go crazy. But how do you know when it's working? This is always the thing I struggled with with improv. When you're pulling the cord, when you got to rip this and start something else, how do you know when it's working? And I ask this, again, with a focus on the bass, because I believe that when you're improving, bass is the bridge. If right. the bass isn't working in improv, Mm-hmm. It's going to get lost. There's no way you're going to connect those, the rhythm and, and the lead part. It's not happening. Well, you can feel it if it's working or not. The, the trick there is if it's not working, you better figure something out else out and quickly. You know, you don't have a song to figure out something else. You know, you got a bar or two to figure out something else. So, Do you have a go-to though? Do you have a no. go-to when it's not working? So no. let's go, talk to me about what your brain, what is your brain saying? I just got to find something here. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's, like I said, I, it's got to fit that rhythm, those chords. And then what you don't want is to have Maceo turn around while you do. So I got to figure out that rhythm, those chords, how to stay 
within what they're doing, but out of the way. And if Maceo turns around, I want him to be bobbing his head when he turns around. Right. We don't want I negative don't... performance reviews here. No, no, no. <laughs> you don't want the look when he turns around. And a lot of times his, you know, I used to watch his feet because you could tell the rhythm he wanted by how his feet were moving. So if you ever saw me play and I'm looking down, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at Maceo's feet because I can tell if he wants swing 16ths or straight eights by the way he bounces his feet while he's singing or talking or playing. That's what kind of kept me in the groove, as it were, watching his feet. Was George a different leader when it came to the improv or similar in terms of how they would approach that? No, George, he kind of let you go. You'd hear about it if it didn't work. If it did work, it's just, you know, hey, that's what it's supposed to be. Let's go. Next song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas Maceo might turn around and, you know, give you that look. <laughs> I'm curious about another moment in time that you were there for, which is seeing slap and funk, especially, mm -hmm. again, bass playing change. That, to me, is one of the delineations of the bass and the evolution of that instrument is when slap and funk and what mm -hmm. it led to, which I believe had real sediments and origins towards what led to disco and all of yeah. that. Well, I'm, I'm sure you've on. heard the, the Larry Graham stories about how he started. For sure. But, but you're to there. me, I heard it before I saw him play. I'm trying to figure out, how's he doing that? Now, mind you, I've always played with my thumb, but as a finger, not as a thumb. I didn't thump with it or anything. Right. It was flamenco, for lack of a better term. So I'm, you know, I'm listening to him. I'm like, what is he doing? So this is how, and I told him this story. Okay, I took, imagine this is a, can you see that? Pick. Yeah. So I took pick like this. And that was my thump, right? And I, you know, I got the pluck part right, but I would, you know, the pick was my. Now, if you look, my thumb is moving just like the pick is, but I never made the connection. It's until the shift I, of it becoming less of a pick and more of a drumstick. Right. And then when I saw him play, I was like, what was I thinking? Well, how and, quickly did the world change from that? Like, how quickly oh, did your playing where you're like, now I need to go back in the shed and I got to start, you know. Bro, I didn't actually practice. I just figured I'd work it in. I'll figure it out as I'm going. I'm not going to try to absorb this learning curve. I'm, I'm just going to do it. And at some point, it'll be what it's supposed to be. That's kind of how I did it. I just integrated it into what I was doing. Like, what helped me was, like I said, I was already playing with my thumb. So I had to go from this dude to that dude. Over time, I got it to where I thought it was good enough. Now, I never wanted to try to play like Larry Graham. I wanted to play what he played within what I was doing. And that's how the, my style of slap developed, which is a strummier. It's more strummier than Larry. Larry is very definitive. Boom. You know what I mean? I, whereas me, I kind of strummed it, strum it in there. But it changes how we see the instrument. It changes how we see yeah. music. Mm -hmm. And because you're in a band with George Clinton, there's no doubt that it's impacting that output too. Because yeah. 
but it's funk. I mean, ultimately, people are coming for you to bring that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is for that me. one of the bigger moments of the, how the instrument changed for you? For, for me, definitely. That was before I joined P-Funk. So by the time I'm with P-Funk, I'm thumping, except on the Bootsy stuff. And he's not really thumping. He, you know, he kind of did the hand pat. Thing. Yeah, he had very strong right hand. Right. So he's doing the, the hand pat thing. I'm doing the thump thing. It's like, I can figure this in there. In fact, one of the, the very first P-Funk related record that, I, that was released was Pleasure Principle by Parlette. That's got all the elements of skeet in it. Heavy thump, little cute little lines. And some little jazzy kind of solo toward the end of it. That's like the skeet coming out party, basically, was Parlette's pleasure principle. I know that you take a lot of joy in speaking to other players and how they think about the instrument. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if there is a certain type of advice you're either always asked about or offering, whether it's solicited or not. What do you tell young players about this? Because... The chance to speak to someone who's played professionally, the amount of times you have, yeah, both length and consistency, mm-hmm. it's a rarity in our world. Well, believe it or not, my biggest point of advice is not about playing itself. It's you want to be good in the locker room. You know, you don't want to cause problems. You don't want to be that guy. That guy gets kicked out of more bands than anybody. We want to work within them, whatever the system is. Back when I started with P-Funk, I could have played 1,000 notes at 1,000 miles per hour every song, but that wouldn't have lasted long. You know, you got to play within the whoever hired you. It's P-Funk. It's not skeet and P-Funk. So I had to tone my thing down. Plus, I wanted to be, if not pleasant, not disruptive in, in the dressing room. Don't be disruptive. That's not a good thing. You don't want that rep because if you get that rep, it doesn't matter how good you are. I could point out a few names, but I won't. (laughs) But it's true. I mean, ultimately, if you're going to spend time together, these people are going to want to spend time with people they want to spend time with. Right, right. And I think that it's true that they will ultimately take an inferior player Mm -hmm. if they just like being around the person. Right. But not even inferior, but a less talented player, let's say. They're competent. They will take somebody who's competent over somebody who's mind-blowing if they're good in the dressing room. And when you talk about playing, what thoughts do you have about playing? One thing, I used to say this to a lot of drummers, in fact. My biggest advice is play half of that. (laughs) I love that. Let's, Let's hear how that sounds if you play half of what you're playing. And that goes for everything. That goes for the content of what you're playing. That goes for volume. That goes for speed. Because if you play the same thing at the same volume, but half of it, it sounds like you're playing at a lower volume. You can cheat that a little bit. Play half of that and let's see how that sounds. This is a famous writing habit. Just write whatever you want and then cut it all in half. See what you got, right? There you go. Yeah. For one thing, you can't play everything that you think you can play unless you're Mono Neon or Victor Wooten or somebody. And there's already a mono neon. There's already a Victor Wooten. But just when you think there already is one, there's after Jacko came Victor and after Victor yeah. comes mono. So there is yeah. somebody else who's coming up at some point. Yeah. But it, it, it's not you. 
you know if it's you know if it's you. you know Definitely not I mean? me, Ski. Definitely <laughs> not me. Yeah. I mean the royal you. Yeah, no, 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 I got you. Yeah, it's not you. You if it's you, you'll know it. I'm wondering if there's a story that others may not know about you that you'd like to share. It can be about the bass, it can be about music, it can be about the journey. That's a good one. Let's come back to that. Go quickly go to something else. Let me think of that one. Sure. What do you what do you think was a more significant moment for you, album and or tour? Was is there one or two that you know this was a significant it was a landmark for you? That one that if you had to choose one thing, it was that moment. And I I would prefer if it were maybe an album, a song, or something that happened on stage somewhere, some gig. Bernie Warrell's album. Ah. To me, that is my best work on record. To me. Like I said, like I like to say, it's got all the skeet elements. It's got the thumping. It's got the cutesy little solos. It's got the lines. It's just, and everybody, we all played well together on that record, which you don't always have. But you get some clunkers. But that record, almost top to bottom, that's my favorite work. But my most known, I don't even want to say known, most sampled and therefore, therefore most famous is probably Helpers on the Way by the Whatnots. But, and that was just the way that whole thing came about was, that was monumental. And the fact that it's been sampled, that's been a hit like three or four different times. Right. Yeah. But the Bernie Warrell album, you know, I, I listened to that today and it's like, man, that is, that's beautiful. I've actually said certain parts of that, that album are just beautiful to me. Love that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned his name once and I'd be remiss if we didn't go back and talk about how you met this person and the work you did. Tell me about Dr. Dre. To me, he's, you know, he's a typical rich guy. He, he's got, I, I have this saying, oh, that's, that's RPS, rich people S. You know, he's got that in spades, but, you know, musically, he knows what he wants, when he wants it. And by him, you know, playing drum machines, your timing better be on point. Because you, if you drift off even a little bit, he'll stop the tape. Boom, what, what are you doing? You know, he knows what he wants. He knows what he doesn't want. He's... Strictly, probably business-wise, it's the best gig I ever did business-wise. What was the gig? What did he want you to do? What was the work? It, the work was play with this beat. Now, what I played might not even end up on that beat. This part might end up over here. This part might end up over there. In fact, he took one thing I did and turned it into a kick drum. So you never know why I didn't where my stuff would end up. I couldn't tell you today what I played on and what I didn't. It's so funny. Guy Pratt was saying that he ran into Madonna years later and said, you know, that bass line on that song was just something else. And she goes, that was you, you dummy. He didn't even realize that. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah I love that, that. In fact, that happened Amorous with, on the Brides of Funkenstein's album. I wrote that song and I'd forgotten about it. That's hilarious. So they played it. He said, what do you think of this? George and a couple of other guys. I'm like, yeah, that's nice. Who's that Bootsy? Bootsy? <laughs> said, nah, idiot. That's you. That's hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gary and I wrote that. And that, that came from the lead into my solo in Funkin' Teleki that I used to do live. 
that came from that. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I remember now. Love <laughs> it. That's, you know, it's a life well lived when you're in that situation. <laughs> yeah. That's you dummy. <laughs> Let, let's go back to a story that others may not know about you. Anything? Now, this is not playing, but this is a story. This is the first gig that I ever played with P-Funk. It was at the Checker Dome, which was in um, St. Louis. So it's not there anymore. But okay, first gig. The first. So I go out on stage. After sound check, I kind of look around. Man, this is, this is all right. You know, 25,000 seats. And, you know, with the mics, everything is set up. Everything's looking all nice. Nobody's in there but me. Everybody's off wherever they're on. So. I walked up to a mic and I was going to say whatever it was. And my lip touched the mic and the whole place went dark. What? Into my lips. Oh, no. And I, I jumped back, eyes teared off. I didn't go down. That's why this is here. I never walk up on a mic anymore. Wait, so you got shocked or what happened? Yeah, I got shocked. But the shock was that crazy? It wiped out the power? Everything blinked off and oh my all. my God. It's all plugged into like one power bar. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. Yeah. Well, remember, that was the dark ages. That's the, sure. This is the 70s. So, and I, and I jumped back and my eyes teared up. I'm crying that, like frozen, like this. And one of the crew dude, you all right? You all right? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. But that's that story. Let me try to think of something more musically inclined. That's a tough, that's a tough one. I'll play with it while you're doing that. I'm sure you go backstage and, and George is like, who did that? And you're like, man, the tech guy on stage. I don't know what he did. <laughs> hey, okay. I got, a, I got a story for you. I got one for you. You go said, George. Okay. The end of the, the flashlight tour. Very successful tour. My first full tour. The shock lip tour. That was like a piece of a tour. I came in on the end of. I was just two weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, okay. It's the end of the flashlight tour. We haven't even changed clothes yet. We're just coming off the stage. Everybody's high-fiving. Everything's great. George was like, everybody sit down. We want to talk about this. So we all like sitting, standing around. And he, he goes to sit on this table, but like a folding table, but a banquet table. So he kind of sits on the edge of it. He's being careful, but I'm thinking oh, he doesn't want to fall. So he reached under the cover that was on the table and pulled out a pie and just whipped it across the room. Then he whipped the cover off as a, just a table full of pies. And we had like this huge pie fight. Oh my God. <laughs> At the end of that, of the flashlight tour, last gig. And it's, and started by him. Like he was all serious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We need to talk about a few things. And he sits on the thing and kind of, his hand under there, whipped that pile, just hauled it across the room. Love it. That's great. Well, Skeet, what an honor to connect with you. Your, the Absolutely. music you've created, the decades of just incredible work. Thanks so much for time. I'd love for you to let people know where they can find out more if you're doing stuff online or what, whatever you got. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on, well, I'm not on Twitter X as much, but I, I'm there all the time. I don't post as much. That's great. But I answer any questions on anywhere. So just find me there and I'll, I'll scold you. Or if, if I put it in, if it's a caption on the picture and you ask me where that was taken, I'm going to say, read the caption. I love it. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm 
amenable to all forms of communication. Keith, so, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate you. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Great to meet you. Uh-huh.